everybody. Welcome to Recovery Machine, Episode 3. I'm your co-host, Corey, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan. Good afternoon, Nathan. Good afternoon. How are you doing today, Corey? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Oh, not too bad. I'm a little bit, uh, feel a little run down. I think I'm uh, maybe doing a little too much exercise lately. I got to back it down a notch or two, I think. But other than that, everything is good. Great. Great. I'm looking forward to today. Episode three, we decided to tackle an easy one today with looking at what addiction really is, all of its properties, how it's affected us. Should be a light, should be a light one for our listeners. <laughs> An easy one. <laughs> gonna listen to this guy. Um, before we get going, I wanted to uh, just mention again that uh, if you want to get a hold of us, if you're in that position where you are a healthcare professional and uh, maybe you haven't uh, found an avenue for um, somebody to talk to or support or help, uh, if you need anything like that, uh, shoot us an email and we can do our best to put you in contact with somebody who's been through um, a similar situation and probably in the same profession, if possible. I'm sure we can do that. Um, so again, our email address is us, as in us, at recoverymachine.org. And uh, yeah, send us an email anytime and let us know uh, how you're doing and what uh, challenges you're facing. And uh, we'll do our best to point you in the right direction. Absolutely. So how should we begin? With the big question. What is addiction? Um, what does it mean to you, Corey, to be addicted? That's a, a huge question. And I, I um, you know, I just feel the need to kind of preface any of my answers with, with um, stating that I'll keep it back to my, bring it back to myself and my own experiences. And, and uh, that is what I know best. That is what I've learned most over the last uh, 14 months is what my own experiences has been. And, and, uh, and the, the lens that I see life through and my experience through. So to me, addiction, um, the difference with addiction is, is the loss of control um, or the perceived loss of control. And, um, you know, despite, despite knowing that something is uh, detrimental to your health and to your well-being and to all of the facets of your life, you're, for various reasons that we will get into, unable to correct that course in that, in that moment of time. And, you know, this could be any kind of uh, unwanted behavior or detrimental behavior. To me, there's a vast spectrum of, of behaviors that can fall under, under the, the umbrella of addiction, certainly not just substance. We are probably primarily going to talk about substance use today because that is our own frame of reference. But to me, it's so much more of that now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, in fact, we will probably focus on opioid addiction since that was uh, the class that got both of us. And uh, we've definitely had most experience with that, although we, you know, participating in, in groups and talking to other, other people who've uh, had similar problems. I mean, obviously, there's lots of different substances, but what I believe is that each substance has its own particular challenges, and I don't like the uh, catch-all kind of 
approach to it where, you know, every substance is, is, is as bad as the next. And, um, you know, like, a a cannabis addiction is every bit as, uh, difficult to manage as an opioid addiction. And I mean, that may be the case for, uh, if you look at individuals, uh, you know, case to case, that's possible, but I would say, generally speaking, there's different factors. Uh, one of the biggest factors is whether or not the substance uh, makes you dependent upon it physically. So, for example, uh, I know people who you could say that they are psychologically, uh, that's an antiquated term, but you could say that they are addicted to mushrooms, magic mushrooms. They're, they're using them all the time. They're using them recreationally. They're using them in many different ways, but I would say they're using them. Maybe it started out in a way that was beneficial, but has now, you know, become less adaptive and, and not a positive. It's not having a positive impact on their, their life anymore. But if they were to, if they were to decide they wanted to stop and they did stop, they wouldn't, they might experience some minor, uh, kind of reactions in the body to that, but it's not going to be the same as if somebody's shooting heroin for 10 years and then they go cold Turkey. There's a big difference between those two. So um, that's an important thing to kind of parse out is the, when you're talking about substance abuse, there's substances that cause a, a very real physical dependence and there's substances that don't, but you can be addicted both ways. Um, and I also think it's possible to be dependent on a substance, but not necessarily addicted. Uh, yeah. So for, for your instance, somebody who's on a pain medication, uh, for a legitimate reason, and they've been using it for a couple months and it's time for them to go off the medication and they experience some negative effects from that, but that's fine. They go through it and they, they go on with their, their life. Um, there was a, a dependence there, but no, no addiction. So, so in our current day and age, addic- the, the word addiction gets tossed around quite a lot. Um, do you think that, that there are more situations where the word dependence or dependency could be put in place of that? Um. It's hard to say. I think, I think what we need to do is put more emphasis on a realizing that it's a complex multifaceted problem that often, well, not often all the time. uh, If, if you're going to classify as something, uh, a problem as an addiction, then I think you have to, you have to have emotional factors that are not present during uh, what you would call a, a drug dependency. Yeah. That's the way I look at it anyway. Yeah. You know, I, so we, we don't, we want to sort of avoid getting too science-based in this discussion or too far into the science at least, because that's not what our conversation is about, but there's, there are many facets of the brain that, that play a role in this and many facets of both the brain in a chemical way and just in terms of our, our psychology. Um, so we will, we will delve into a little bit of that in the conversation, but kind of coming back to our next question about 
do we call it a disease or do we call it a disorder? You know, I went to um, an addiction specialist and was diagnosed with an opioid use disorder. And, and the, the word disease never came, never came into the conversation. Um, now, I think what was more important were the, the tools that I learned to get myself out of that and the course of treatment versus the label. The label, in fact, I would argue wasn't of much benefit to me, but gaining some direction, gaining some, um, some support was obviously much more, much more helpful. So what does the term disorder mean to you? How does that fit into the conversation? Well, uh, I would start by saying that uh, not only is the word disease not helpful, I would say that it's actually harmful in a lot of cases. And the reason I say that is because <clears throat> if, you, if you tell somebody who maybe doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, education or uh, they don't have the, the resources to, to have the background to really understand the problem, uh, which a lot of people don't, they might think that when you, you know, if you label them with a disease and you tell them that uh, this is something that is lifelong, it's something you have no control over, um, you know, it's akin to, uh, you know, cancer or, or some other chronic condition. Um, I think right away you're, you're, you're putting that person in a position where they're not, you know, I think they're going to, and to throw their hands up in the air. If, if they believe that they can't get out of it, then, then you've basically taken that person's autonomy away immediately. So and disempowering. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't like that word, but I mean, I don't want to get caught like semantics, especially these days drives me insane with all the, the conflicts over language and stuff. But I think <clears throat> the way I look at it is if you wanted to call it a disease, if you were hell bent on that or, I, I think you could look at it like uh, how you look at diabetes. So you've got type one and you've got type two diabetes. Type one is the kind where you're born with a pancreas that doesn't, it just doesn't produce enough insulin. Um, and type two is the kind that is, it basically forms slowly over time as a response to your lifestyle. So you're, you're eating foods that are causing uh, insulin spikes and basically the, the constant high levels of glucose wear out your pancreas and you put yourself into a position where most people come to a crossroads and they're, they're faced with either change your lifestyle or go on medication. So in that, in that respect, I suppose you could say addiction is like, is like type two diabetes and that you, you kind of, you build toward it, towards it with poor lifestyle choices. Um, there's a little bit of genetics for sure. There's there's genetic components that make you, uh, it, you know, make you predisposed to developing addiction, um, as well as uh, type two diabetes. But uh, there's still an element of choice, and there's an element of spectrum. So. You know, you can have a, a very mild case of addiction and the same with, you know, where you're at a pre-diabetes state that can be reversed with diet and exercise. Um, so that's, that's one way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, I, I like the author, uh, Gene Heyman, uh, his book, Dis uh, Disorder of Choice, 
is uh, probably the best kind of perspective that I've seen on it. And basically, he believes that it's it's an imbalance in the limbic system, which is, I mean, that checks out with the research as far as what we know is going on in the limbic system and the nucleus accumbens. It's, uh, it's not only that you're running out of, you're, you're no, longer, no longer producing as much uh, endogenous opioid, uh, like uh, endorphins and uh, dopamine and serotonin. Um, you're also kind of tilting your limbic system against you. So it becomes uh, a situation where you need X amount of the drug just to feel normal. And that's the, that's the uphill battle that you're facing. I mean, in theory, yes, you could, you could pull out of that whenever you want, but it's not, it's not as easy as just making that decision because you, you become very focused on the here and now uh, all your decisions become, you know, immediate gratification as opposed to delayed gratification. So yeah. I think it, it's not that it's not that you're powerless, and it's not that the ability to make a decision is completely gone. It's just that the difficulty level has been cranked up, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I I have got through fourteen months of of recovery and only very, very recently as you and I have delved into these conversations, how has the word compulsion come, come into some of the reading that I've done and that, that the behaviors around addictive, you know, addictive behaviors, whatever that pattern, and we'll get into some what some of the behavioral patterns are in response to environmental triggers and so forth. But there, there's a, a compulsive aspect Certainly, there's a disorder within the impulse control or a, a, a dysregulation, deregulation of impulse control, um, and a, a compulsive aspect where the brain or the subconscious is guiding your actions before or even despite your conscious mind telling it otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where you know our our conversation, and I think the first episode about in the moment of of addiction. In, in inactive addiction, where it does feel like a very rational choice, where the, to the onlooker, a, a nurse stealing drugs is highly irrational. But in that moment, it's, it's highly rational because, yeah, yeah because you're sort of, um, you are not overriding, your conscious mind is not overriding your subconscious mind. For, for various reasons and your un- your subconscious mind is also looking for a, a solution to the issues that are creeping. I would, I would, I would say that they're sort of floating between the issues are floating between the subconscious and the conscious. We, many of us are aware of the things that are getting us, that are getting us down, that are problematic within our thoughts, but we're not necessarily at a point of, of changing them or a point of fully grasping what they, what those thoughts are doing to us. Yeah. You're, you're kind of fooling yourself, but uh, the, in the beginning, it is a, it is a rational strategy to cope with the environment that you're in. Um, I mean, for both of us, obviously the strategy had some merit in the short term. So if you were able to somehow 
and there's people out there who can do this where they're say they had a, a legal supply of, of hydromorph and we lived in a society where it was not frowned upon or stigmatized to use that. Um, there's probably many people out there who could, who could use it recreationally or even in times of uh, duress, although that I would argue that that'd be a more dangerous way to do it, yeah. but they could do that as long as the use does not, does not, form into an addiction in a way that you're, you continue to use the substance past its point of usefulness, if that makes sense. Uh, in other words, you're in an area where you know, now you know that uh, you're no longer getting very much good. There's not a lot of positive coming out of use, but you're still using it just to stave off negative effects. And basically because you're, you're stuck, you're dependent upon it and you've got a problem. Yeah. So this this kind of leads us quite naturally into the into one question ahead from where we had initially said we were going to go. Um, I'm fascinated by this by this question about what changed in us, or what changes in any person who can go from controlled, maybe sporadic or very occasional substance use, whether it's the occasional cigarette or the occasional glass of wine, or for myself, from trying opiates as a teenager on one or two occasions, having a either a positive or sort of just above neutral experience with them. What changes in our environment, in our brain, in our conscious and subconscious minds, in our spirit, to take you from being able to, to dabble or to use intermittently to a, an uncontrollable urge and a sort of a compulsive addictive behavior. Yeah. Well, we talked about how um, for both of us, there was a, an early, there was a, a, a link that formed early on that maybe at like in my case, I, I understood that there was a, a very memorable, uh, pleasurable sensation with, with opiate use, but that wasn't enough. It also had to be that I was in a position where I was suffering uh, physically, emotionally, and under duress. And then when I used it again, not only did I get the euphoria, but I also got relief. It took away all the all the negative problems that were not being addressed in my life. It it made work much easier, and it got me through the day when I didn't think I could make it through the day. And when you've got something that's that's just you know the right thing to do under those circumstances would have been uh, to recognize that the, it's not something that's that that should be played with in that in that regard it's it's too dangerous of a substance to use like that and if you feel that that's that's all that's getting you through the day then obviously you have other things that need to be addressed and you can't put getting through the day at work that high on your priority list you know when you're when your life is falling apart you know maybe it's time you take some time off work maybe it's time you find a new job i know these are these are things that don't 
present themselves as easy solutions. But I think what happens, what happened to me was I found myself in such a state of depression that I was in a hole and I couldn't, I knew that there were options out there, I guess, but because I was so far down in this hole, I could just see the kind of darkness around me and I couldn't see that I wasn't really trapped. You know, I still had autonomy. I could, I had control of my life. I could have, you know, if I was having that hard of a time, just quit. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to continue your job or, you know, if you're having that much trouble in your relationship, then either work on it or, or move on, you know, like there is, we're in control of, of a lot more than we give ourselves credit for and vice versa. I mean, there's, there's obviously things that we can't control, but um, I think one of the things that happens when you start down that path is your ability to see options out. uh, It gets dim. And the further you go down that path, you get to the point where you think that there is no option and you, you kind of give up hope. You, you basically, I mean, I, I got to a point where I was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen here. I guess I'm just going to keep going and maybe I'll die or, you know, I, I hope I don't die, but I, you know, I, I really didn't have a, you, I couldn't see forward far enough anymore. It was just day to day to day to day. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that inability to see your way out when you're, when you're in that spot is, is definitely part of it. So for me, I, I think that one of the most interesting questions that I've asked my had to had to ask myself in this process is is the fact that I had a circle of people in my life at the time that the addiction really took hold of me and there's a kind of a perception out there that that there's that disconnection plays a role and I've come to really believe that disconnection does play a role, but I was asking myself, well, Jesus, how, how, if I have a loving family around me and a supportive, supportive group of friends and, and a job where people were admiring me and looking up to me, how could I have gone down this, this path? And I'm, I'm certainly, I don't want to, um, I really believe that it is multifactorial. So I think that there are things that occur that occurred with, with, in my life that put a, a invisible barrier between myself and those other people that the connections were there. There were people who said, Corey, we love you. You know, let's, let's get together. We're a part of each other's lives. But in my own perception at the time, um, I couldn't fully reach back. And even if I thought I was, um, my negative thinking, my state of depression, and just state of um, unwell mental health interfered with seeing the value of authentic, like full connection, connection where, where there's no mask, connection where you can you know, be authentic and say, I'm having a really shitty day. I, I think that is what changed in my life for a variety of reasons and looking at my, the, um, the impact of my job. And I don't think the, that my job 
was the sole reason for me to go down the, the route of addiction. But the circumstances that I faced and sort of the compounding um, experiences that weren't being unpacked. And I'm talking like, you know, nine years of being an ER nurse and seeing a lot of death, seeing a lot of human suffering, seeing a lot of physical pain, emotional pain and tragedy and not unpacking that. Or maybe maybe I, I would go as far as to share with my you know close confidants about what had happened or wh- how I was feeling, but um, I've learned that that takes a lot more time. <laughs> that the that the effort to unpack it, the time it takes to unpack those things, and to unpack them to to a point where your mental clarity changes, your mental sort of makeup changes in the absence of, of, uh, mood altering substance, that takes a lot more time than I, that I give it credit for. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, you look at the situation that nurses are faced with every day, especially acute care, uh, emergency nurses, they're, they're expected to just kind of <laughs> get over all that stuff. And I mean, we know there's a wide variation in, uh, how susceptible people are to, traumatic stress. Uh, we've seen that in people coming back from war. Uh, you know, you can have two, two people experience the very same thing for one person. It's, it does lasting damage. The other one shakes it off. We're not sure why that is, but we know there's a wide variation and that variation is not really (laughs) taken into account in, in nursing. I mean, I know you guys are supposed to have some, some, uh, I think you've got debriefing, uh, people that are supposed to be there. Isn't that right? Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring, bring up debriefing as well. And okay. debriefing is, is most certainly a valuable part of the job, but <clears throat> debriefing at this juncture is more of an exception than it is a rule. And yeah. it is, it is, it is exceptional circumstances that oftentimes will trigger them to bring in a, a person to do a debrief, um, a psychologist to gather the team together and really hash out what happened. But I've really come to to believe that the debriefing should be more of a necessity and should be more of a a regular, regular, weekly, weekly occurrence. Yeah, I would agree. I think it should be routine and uh, it should be a prominent position and it should, it should just be part of your, you know, you go to work, uh, maybe they could do it uh, every, you guys are usually on four-day rotations, I think. The end of every rotation, you spend, you know, an hour just talking to somebody about what you went through. And if yeah. you didn't go through anything, that's fine. You, uh, you know, you can talk about whatever you want, but that option should be open and available and utilized. And I think there should be, um, you know, an effort to encourage nurses to use that Um, because I don't, (laughs) I mean, you you look at how many nurses we're losing to traumatic stress or nurses that are out of work because of circumstances like yours. I mean, it's, you're not an anomaly. I mean, (laughs) there's many, many nurses who are, uh, who are having trouble with hydromorph or have had trouble with hydromorph. 
I know nurses who are, their careers are over because of Hydromorph. It just, it's, it's getting too many nurses and it's, it's because it's available and it's because you guys are under too much pressure and you don't have the support. That's, that's how I see it. So if, if we were at work <clears throat> or working at home and we cut our finger on a, on a kitchen knife, you would stop making dinner and put a bandaid on and treat the wound. But it occurs to me that if an incident occurs at the beginning of, of a shift or, or even worse at the beginning of a set of shifts. So you're doing four days, day one, hour two, something horrific happens. Maybe there's time to do a debrief, you know, pull the team aside for, for 30 minutes and, and connect on what happened and how everyone's doing but you still have 10 hours left in that shift and you still have 36 hours more in your set of shifts to go through. And I was thinking about what, what that said, what we tell ourselves psychologically, if we keep going, we, we tell ourselves that our own needs, that our own psychological state is, is secondary or tertiary to what the needs of our environment, the needs of the people around us. Now, as healthcare workers, we do take, in, in the case of nurses, not necessarily a, a formal oath, but there's a code of ethics, and there's an expectation that, that it's patient-focused care and that we put our patients first. I certainly agree with that. But if something happens that could be psychologically wounding to, to the staff, and if we don't pause and afford people the opportunity to, to feel connected in the, in the expression of what happened and to ensure that they aren't carrying on and moving forward with a, with a burden, then we're, we're doing a disservice to the entire system, not just to that nurse, but to the other patients that they'll see that day, the other staff that they'll be working with. Um, and we can get, get into trouble from there, I think. Yeah. Well, this is more preventative uh, care stuff that our healthcare system just for whatever reason doesn't invest in, even though the economic returns are obvious. I mean, I can't imagine that uh, the health authorities don't understand that these things cost a lot of money if they're not addressed. It's just, it seems that, I don't know if it's our political system where, you know, we're every few years we're voting somebody else in. So all our measures, all our, um, all the things that are, are promoted for people to get elected are, you know, only short-term or, or mid-term kind of corrections to the system. There's never any, there doesn't appear to be a lot of long-term focus as far yeah. as, I mean, wouldn't you think that it would make sense to preserve the healthcare workers that you have? You've already invested all that training in them. And, and I don't know what the turnover is now, but like, I don't, <laughs> I just, I don't see a lot of support where, you know, if you're going to have to spend a whole bunch of money on hiring new nurses, as opposed to keeping the nurses you have that are already, you know, trained, especially in your whatever particular area of expertise it is, why wouldn't you invest that money in keeping them, you know, mentally fit or even yeah. physically fit for that? Or matter? even physically fit, even physically fit. You know, I, I, I look at pictures of myself when I graduated from nursing school and, um, and think back to the way I felt when I graduated from, from nursing school and just the entire 
mind, body, spirit of myself sort of changed over that time. Again, I put that greatly on myself and greatly on um, not not doing the things that I needed to do to to keep myself grounded and tethered and and um, and not setting boundaries and not saying no when I needed to say no. But there's a there's a a disservice that is intertwined in the in the system right now that um, puts people in a vulnerable space vulnerable space. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to uh, go back quickly to where you were talking about um, how you were finding it difficult at, at, at towards your the end of your active addiction or throughout your active addiction. You were finding it difficult to kind of find solace in your friends and family. Yeah. And I think, I mean, after after learning about the way that drug kind of provides all your oxytocin for you and and basically makes it so that your normal human connections are are comparatively very weak or unattractive it i think you're you're almost it's like taking something that blocks you from forming meaningful connections it screws yeah. up your relationships it screws up your you know your friends uh you're there, but you're not there because why would you be, you know, your natural inclination towards forming those bonds is there's no point anymore. There's no, our normal evolutionary gear, that oxytocin molecule is being replaced by something far more powerful. You're control, you're uh, connected to the drug. (laughs) There's no room for other people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a part of it too. So yeah, if you feel like you're alone in a, in, you're in the middle of a room filled with people and you feel like you're not connecting. Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah. I wrote down a quote here. Um, I, I had shared the Ted talk by Rachel Wurzman with you um, called disconnected brains, which I highly recommend. It's about 20 minutes and, and it's uh, highly informative and really, really relevant to what we're talking about. I just, I pulled out a quote because I, to me, I think there's just so much, so much there that is, that is me. Uh, loneliness, creates a hunger in the brain, which neurochemically hypersensitizes our reward system. Social, social isolation acts through receptors for naturally occurring opioids to leave the striatum in a state where its response to things that signal reward and pleasure are completely over the top, which results in an increased impulsivity. So again, when I first listened to this, I thought, well, I wasn't lonely. I had my family. I had my friends. I had my son. But the the presence of all of these things that were burdening me within my mental health created a feeling of loneliness. And, um, and I've learned now that that put me in a really, really vulnerable state. And when I think of how I was behaving, even aside from at work that resulted in, in opioid use at home that resulted in, in eating too much, in isolating myself, in, um, too much screen time and just sort of continued disconnection from, from my circle. And it, it became a loop. Yeah, it is a, it's definitely a feedback loop. You're uh, the game is rigged against you at that point for sure. Yeah. You know, the, her, her mentioning of the fact that um, if you give, non-opioid users, naloxone, naloxone being Narcan, which 
reverses opioid overdose. If you give non-opioid users Narcan, that it generates a feeling of social isolation and disconnection. Yeah. Um, for anybody who's uh, curious about the way that works, it's basically um, that drug is is stopping your natural opioid-like molecules or uh, neurotransmitters from functioning. So all your uh, feel-good uh, serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, all that stuff is being slowed down or stopped, and it's putting you in a state that's uh, that makes it basically it's an artificial bond blocker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, which is which is really bizarre uh, because it gives credence to what we've known for a while through peer support groups and um, just accumulated knowledge that connection is a big deal in addiction. And uh, that's that's the first real evidence I've seen, you know, scientifically of of an actual mechanism for that. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. Thanks for you, uh, putting me yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, is a good one. And when you think of the action of the drug, the the physical effect that the drug has on on us, on me certainly, it is a comforting feeling. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the whole thing, isn't it? Like, um, I mean, we wanted to talk about some of the feelings that you experience when you stop taking drugs like that, and uh, we'll get to that. But uh, just to to kind of um, put it out there right now, that loneliness, that feeling of, I felt like... I, a state of loneliness that's hard to describe. It's, it's not just that you can't, it, it feels like everybody's gone and they're never coming back. And anyone who ever cared about you never really cared about you. That's the, that's the pervasive feeling alongside, you know, the mind bending depression and, and all the rest of the, the angst and the, the horrible kind of nightmarish, sort of texture to the whole experience, but that loneliness part, and, and it makes sense, right? Because you've been artificially, your brain's been on steroids as far as that's concerned. You know, you've been just funneling this, this uh, feel good connection, kind of artificial connections uh, molecules in there and then you take it away and yeah, your limbic system freaks out. Yeah, absolutely. So Nathan, do you, do you think that there's a genetic factor in, yeah. in, in opioid addiction? Yeah, for sure. Um, like I was saying with the, uh, the type two diabetes comparison, I, I think that, uh, well, the topic we were just discussing there, one thing that uh, seems to be fairly pervasive is you talk to people who have trouble with opiates and one thing that a lot of them will say is that when I was younger, I felt like everything was, it wasn't necessarily that they were experiencing negative uh, interactions with people, but there was a feeling that they never, people re never really understood them or, or they never really felt like they could connect with people. And that, that was definitely the case with, with me when I was, I mean, when I was a kid, I think it was fine up to a point. And then once I became a teenager, I, I started 
it, it's, I think during that stage of brain development, um, there's a genetic spectrum and some people are blessed with, um, and this might be tied to extroversion, right? Where these people form bonds extremely quickly. And you know, people like this who they get yeah. along with everybody. They know a million people. We call them connectors or networkers, whatever you want to call them, but they, they just have no issues whatsoever with that. And they feel tremendously supported and, and, and that's an awesome blessing to have, but there's the other side of it. And I think if you, if you're an individual who finds it difficult to form those kind of connections, and then you run into something that all of a sudden just, you know, pours a bunch of gasoline on that, on that nice warm fire, uh, of course, you know, you're going to, you're going to gravitate towards that. So that would be one example of a genetic predisposition right there. There are certainly different ingredients in the recipe and, and the memory that I had, and I've shared this with, with the people in my life um, since, since I've been in the journey of, of recovery here is I remember from a very early age and I'm talking five or six years old having asking the question of what is the point of this? If we all die, if this all ends, what is the, what is the point? Now I was not, I was not a depressed kid. I was a kid who had experienced loss early in life, early childhood loss and grief very early. Can you tell us what that loss was? So my oldest sister died when I was, uh, 11 months old. So this is not something that I have any, any memory of, but uh, it is certainly was a, a factor in the home that I grew up in and uh, growing up in a, in a, in a family that was moving through, through grief and loss and, and tragedy. So I think that that contributed to that question that I was asking myself uh, at age five or six of what's, what's the point, what are we doing here? And, and we, will, we were going to come to the question later on about what worked for us. But, but there's a huge piece for me was coming back to that question that I was asking myself, you know, from 30 years ago. Um, so we will we'll come to that. But um, it's interesting that, that there is a, a, a commonality there in people that sort of this, this, this not necessarily a nameable characteristic or trait, but um, but there's a, a social dissatisfaction and a um, a sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly a sensitivity. Um, people who are have a higher probability of of getting into trouble with substances, I think, are people who tend to feel other people's emotions a little more acutely. Yeah. Um, which can be, you know, it's it can be a, a gift and a curse. Um, these people tend to be. Uh, a little easier to, you know, they tend to be the people that you go to when you want to talk to somebody, right? Because they're, they're good listeners. They kind of understand. Um, and they also tend to be healthcare workers. Yes. Right? yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, which is, again, I mean, it makes you a better healthcare worker, but it also burns you out faster because you tend to, you connect on that level with people in a, in a more efficient way. Right. So it, um, so you take on whatever their problems are, you take on the feeling, um, and then you, then you go home and you can't shake it. 
and yeah. that piles up and it piles up and and that's that's another trait the other thing i think that um for me was a big factor is i i tend to be pessimistic as in if i if i don't make a conscious effort then i tend to gravitate towards darkness all uh just my default setting is to pick out bad right and that's an evolutionary trait that served humans at one time and still does in a way uh so i understand the way that 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 came about and the way that it got selected for and and why i'm like that um <clears throat> but back when you know in my i think things really started to unravel for me in my early 30s um and when i think back to the way i was viewing the world at that time i just wasn't i wasn't putting the discipline and the effort into my attitude and my perspective and the way that i chose to see the world because that is a decision as well you can train your mind to focus on you know it doesn't always you don't have to always see the the darkness and it took me a while to understand that but when i first started getting into trouble with uh with with opiates it was i think there was a part of me that just always kind of considered life itself to be a burden in a way so i didn't place a whole lot of value on on the experience of life itself you know like i as far as you know whether i uh lived or died i i mean i didn't want to die but i just didn't i i didn't care to be honest you know and um i think that that has a lot to do with uh your resilience and with with no resilience going into a an addictive state like that you're much more susceptible so my attitude just that part something that's yes it's a trait we know that introversion extroversion uh pessimism optimism all these things there's a there's definitely a genetic component to it but they're not written in stone these things can be developed that your mind can be trained and you can change the way that you see the world and thus gain the resilience that uh you know would keep you out of those situations had it been there in the first place yeah absolutely and to me uh that changing of our mental uh of how we how we perceive our our world and and how we harness our pessim our pessimism also comes down to boundaries and it's setting that setting that boundary where we say i'm not going to let this affect me to this to this degree or here you know the the adage of the things that we have control over and and the things that we don't to me that's why boundaries is such a it's like a almost a universal thing that is taught in in every every um style of recovery program boundaries seems to to be a a, a discussion point and part of that is is not allowing that that cascade of of um negatively viewing the world and letting letting all of the all of the burdens pile up on us it's it's saying no 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 this is what i can do and this is what i what i can't at least for me that's been a huge part of it yeah so so what about the environment this is such a fascinating um talking point in in the discussion about addiction because um there are examples in every community where you can see specific environments that seem to be um 
connected with with addiction um and then there are ones that are a little bit more sneaky and you don't necessarily see see the connections there um but environment it has been studied and and it is shown that environment plays a big role and in in myself environment came down to the the stimulus that caused me so much sort of agitation disconnection um unresolved and and protracted grief and being in that hyper stimulating um environment where i was essentially reliving reliving the traumas that i had experienced over the over the course of being a an er nurse for so many years but it's not not everyone has that kind of environment so what, what do you see the environment playing in in addiction uh, well, there's there's a few things that I've seen in in the literature to support factors in early development, like your, I think, what is it, two to three, maybe two to four years old, that period of time where you're developing is particularly important for um for the child in that the environment that they're in. And whatever state their their parents are in uh, emotionally tends to kind of be soaked up like a sponge. So it can set you off on a course for you know either a calm, relaxed person or a hyper vigilant person or whatever it may be. So when I, you know, one of the things they like to do is a big push with substance abuse issues, or everyone wants to point to trauma, trauma, trauma. You know, and what I've seen and what I've what I've lived through. It's, I, I mean, I don't have any kind of trauma that would be near enough <laughs> in my childhood to warrant, uh, you know, as far as I, I went with drugs. And I, I don't think that uh, trauma is the end all and be all of uh, the motivation towards drug use or the loss of control with, with drug use. Agreed. Um, but personally, I, when I went back and, you know, I did spent, I spent maybe two years, of uh, really going through everything in my past and asking questions and making sure that I wasn't missing anything, you know? And um, the only thing that I think played a role as far as uh, my early development in my environment was that my parents were very young. So I mean, my parents had me when they were 18, right? And um, <clears throat> there was a period of time when I was, you know, in that area that I was talking about where you're two, three, four years old, where my father was uh, working in another location, like in another town, he'd have to go up North to work. And I think when I talked to my mom about that, I think when he was gone, uh, my parents have a very strong relationship They're You know, they're kind of like two peas in a pod type of thing. Um, and when he was gone, I, my mom, I can remember a, a feeling of anxiety and just a layer of stress that wasn't there before. And that layer of stress and anxiety that was, you know, coming from my mom, but being perceived by me as the older sibling. And I, when I talked to my sister, you know, she was very, very young and she doesn't remember anything about this, but uh, that I think is the, the, the only part of my, my, environment growing up that caused me to be predisposed towards drug use. And the way that it did that was that it, 
I took on a certain level of anxiety. And as I developed, I, I, I couldn't recognize it for what it was until, you know, it was, it was maybe when I was 16 or 17, I started to, to realize that maybe this wasn't how everybody felt and that I called it the beehive. And it was, uh, it's just a feeling in my chest, like right mm-hmm. around my solar plexus yeah. that, that it's a feeling of angst and sort of dread and it's always there, but it, it, it is, was elevated during social interactions. And I didn't realize at the time, but I think I had a little bit of social anxiety and still do, uh, which is, you know, no big deal. But if you don't know what it is, you know, I, I can remember one of the, like the first time I tried alcohol, I, one of the, the greatest things about it was that that beehive went away. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, is this ever nice? You know, and I can, I can interact with people and I don't feel uncomfortable and, you know, it was great, but um, opiates did the same thing. They, yeah. they absolutely quieted that, that feeling of angst down and took it right away. And um, of course, when I went off them, uh, the beehive was, was like, it was hit with a baseball bat, right? Uh, it took a long time to settle down again, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, an environmental factor early on. How much of a factor do you think? Now, I, I know, I mean, it, it's amazing that your parents are, are still going. Actually, I think uh, the rate for divorce after losing a child is like 90% or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's extremely high. Yeah. It's extremely high. So uh, kudos to your folks for, for making it through that. That takes an incredible amount of uh, guts and, and fortitude. It's, I don't think it's one of those experiences that you could only ever understand if it happened to you and you definitely, you know, you'd hope it never did. But uh, yeah. what do you think they're struggling with that loss how do you think that reflected on you growing up? The thing that I've come to again and again with that, because it was a very loving, nurturing, warm home that I grew up in. But because of my age, I, I don't remember that those key first couple of years after, after the death of my sister. And I think that the having parents who must have been must have been grieving and and having a really difficult time granted they were in intensive therapy you know on a full-time basis but i think that it it shaped me to reg, to self-regulate my emotional reactions and to uh internalize difficult emotions in some ways they didn't want to burden them. I think didn't want to burden them and um, became, became good, right. too good in, in, in many cases, I think. And, you know, there's, I, I had read a piece recently about, you know, that if a, if a child um, for whatever reason may be, if a child sort of internalizes their emotional response to a situation or feels that they have to internalize it. And for whatever reason, they, they can't express it outwardly or that the expression of it outwardly 
results in a negative reaction or in a in in a stress response then the response of the child is to continue to internalize and i was i was an expressive kid in in many ways but i think with um i think i was probably even at a age before i can remember i knew to be easier on my parents at times now that changed when i was certainly when i was a teenager and i wasn't always quote unquote good but as a very little kid i at at 2 or 3 years old to harness our reactions or modify our reactions based on our environment and i just think how could that not have impacted how i expressed anger or sadness or frustration or whatever it may be and i look at myself growing up as a as a youth and as a young man and always wanted to work on my assertiveness and i remember being in nursing school thinking um that assertiveness was one of my really big learning needs setting boundaries and, and being assertive and i thought that assertiveness meant uh you know really fiercely standing up for standing up for yourself and not putting up with any shit and 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 being tough and i never i never got there and assertiveness always translated to me to be to be um uh, a reaction at times when that beehive in my chest came i would react to that and sometimes react out of anger or react out of frustration and then i would feel more hot in the face what i've learned now is that assertiveness is just sort of being aware of my own personal value system being aware of what sits right within my my personal framework within my spirit and and speaking that and that it doesn't have to be a a a reactionary thing um and i really wish i had to learn that when i was a much younger man but um yeah well, um you know what i'm talking about with that beehive then very very well and i you know okay. i would i would venture to guess that that's a a more common uh, a more common experience with people with any kind of addiction addictive behaviors than than science knows um for me being able to really connect with that feeling has been helpful um i can't even recall how many times in my adult life i was walking around with that that awful sort of sensation in my chest or in the pit of my stomach and either didn't acknowledge it for what it was didn't kind of pause to allow that to pass but tried to just move move through it and that naturally sort of results in maladaptive responses or maladaptive behaviors i think absolutely um see other environmental things i guess we discussed um you know we've both talked in depth of the type of environment that our our jobs uh kind of resulted in us being in a place where you know we're a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure and not a lot of uh neither one of us were really properly taking care of ourselves in those environments we weren't setting the the work boundaries for hours we weren't um you know paying attention to how you know your own personal level of burnout and stuff like that so you're just yeah. kicking the can down the road and doing whatever it takes to stay in the pocket right yeah um so 
those things uh, we discussed, I think there were other things that made me um, more susceptible to falling into that trap at the time that I did. And I think that, you know, my, most of my adult life, you know, I grew up uh, in a, a smaller town in the north in northern BC, and uh, you know, there's lots of partying, and and uh, you know, I always enjoyed uh, uh, that kind of scene, and that you know, for most of my life, that had been that had been fine up until a combination of events, and I think because when I turned, you know, I was around thirty, I think. You know, that's a lot of times that's when people experience their first bout of depression or whatever. That's a common age, early 30s. And I think that was going on, but I, I kind of just partied through it, you know. Um, and it, so I didn't address that. I wasn't addressing uh, issues that I was having in my relationship. So I think I was kind of and I wasn't taking care of myself either. You know, I wasn't you know, I'm the type of guy who. I know I don't feel right unless I'm exercising. Like I, I can tell the difference in my state of mind. I don't sleep properly. You know, all sorts of issues compound. If I don't move around, I have to, I, I just can't be that guy who sits on the couch for seven days a week. And yet, you know, that's kind of what it had come to in my life. I was living a very kind of luxurious, um, you know, it was all fun all the time. And I wasn't, I wasn't kind of taking that time out to, to spend time doing the things that I, I used to enjoy. So I wasn't going to the gym. I wasn't training. I wasn't, um, I wasn't really even reading, you know, I, I wasn't, um, I just, any hobby that I used to enjoy, I wasn't, everything was on the lifestyle that I was in and all of those things combined made me very vulnerable to, <laughs> to what came along next. So as soon as there was a downturn, I didn't have that natural, you know, my, my normal resilience to life stress was already fading. I'd already, already been dabbling in, in harder drugs. And all it took was, you know, a couple gut punches from life. And I was in a, you know, I was, basically very susceptible to what came next. So I think for me, that's, those are the cues of the environmental factors, emotional factors that kind of made me more, led me down that path, I guess you could say. Oh yeah. Yeah. The brain has a remarkable ability to remember the rewards that it receives. And, and even if we're not taking that same neural pathway, that same road every day, it remembers how to get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, would you say, like, what kind of stuff made you more susceptible? Like, what what set you up to to fail as far as your addiction was concerned? Was there something going on leading into it besides work? Or was it just things previously in life that it kind of stacked up and stacked up? And then you got into a job that, that you found uh, was kind of all-consuming and and that was your solution? I think it was things stacking up. I think it was uh, a culmination of, of how the last uh, 10 years had gone for me or more. Um, and yeah, not, not, not taking care of my body, mind and, and spirit. And um, 
and the negative message of telling myself to keep, keep pushing through for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, I think that the common, the common answer that I come, keep coming to is, is isolation that um, aspects of my job and the things I experienced with my job and the way I was working, the hours I was working, um, things that were happening with my, within my personal relationships, going through a divorce, uh, being raising a, a little one and being at home more on my own. All of those things were, were isolating things uh, and isolation and loneliness. Again, even when you think that you got a whole bunch of people around you, if there are things that are interfering that with that and getting in the way of that, then, then I think I was very, very vulnerable to that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And yeah, it's not just that uh, you've got the, you've got the drug interfering with your ability to form connections, but um, yeah, I think with a propensity towards that, you know, the kind of disposition to, to have trouble with it in the first place, you know, it, uh, it makes it really tough and uh, definitely sets you up. It does. And so bringing that into the, the next question of our conversation you're in, we're in this state of, of loneliness or state of depression or, or, you know, ill mental health in its various forms. And then we do something that gives us a reward from the, from the drug makes us feel soothed or, or makes us feel better or euphoric or whatever you want to call it. But then there's also a, a chemical reward of, of, of this dopamine surge from the, behaviors that are associated with the addiction and from, from taking the substance itself. So that chemical reward is not just, not just putting a bandaid on it, but it's really, really giving our brain that message that, that it is working. And it's more than just a, a, a thought process. It's a chemical process that's telling us that it's, that it's not only working, but that it's working for us and feeling really, really good and that you got to keep going with it. Yeah. So the thing that the thing that comes to mind for me is is an, I mean a nurse who's becomes addicted to hydromorphone is is pocketing the hydromorphone and let's be uh, let's just for a second there pause and uh, just clarify that there are multiple ways to get hydromorphone out of a hospital yes. Um, uh, including taking it directly out of the, what are they called? Pixis machine or. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you could do that. Um, but I've heard a lot of people get started on uh, disposable, uh, you know, doses that have been partially given uh, the sharps bin, um, you know, doses that are left and forgotten. Um, you know, so there's multiple ways that this can, this can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. And, and that's exactly true. I think that that's from the people I've talked to, that seems to be the most common way is initially, at least is that it's lying around. It's, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so to me, accepting the fact that, you know, and, and theft is not something I've ever participated in at any other point in my life, but there is a chemical reward. There is a dopamine release from successfully taking something. 
Yeah, that's interesting that you, uh, uh, that's not something that I've, I've ever considered as part of the uh, kind of the reinforcing cues of the behavior. But you were mentioning that it very much was, it was a part of a, a series of chains of, of cues of events that all reinforced each other throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you think about the course of a day, particularly the course of a, of a stressful day, a day that where there's, where there's all sorts of um, stressful stimulation happening in terms of all the senses. And then you're, you've already, you've already dabbled or taken, taken the, the drug or hydromorphone once your brain knows that there is a, a dopamine release. So you, you, lift the drug off the counter, there's a dopamine release. You go and you go to wherever, whatever private spot that you're going to go and use. And you, you've, even if you're not necessarily consciously uh, getting off on that feeling, your brain knows that it is succeeding in, in that course of action. Anyone who's engaged in, in a, an injectable, even if it's intramuscular, like myself, intramuscular drug use, there's a reward from that needle prick. Even if it's not, needle, a, yeah. even if we don't think, Oh, that feels good. We know our brain knows like with classical conditioning, our brain knows that there will be a reward after that needle prick. Yeah. And, and then comes the surge of chemical reward from the, from the drug. And so just looking at like kind of psych one one we're very much setting ourselves up for, for what will become a repetitive compulsive behavior. Yeah. And these are really important factors to consider if you're yeah. somebody out there and you're thinking of going back to work, maybe you've successfully kicked, kicked a habit like this at home, you've taken some time off and now you're thinking of going back. You must understand that being at home and and being free and clear of opioids is different than going back to work and and maintaining that yes yes it's vastly different you know i i've described this to you before that being at home for the la over the last year is like being in a in a very safe little bubble where where we, all of that negative stimulation all of the sights and sounds and smells and and experiences that I was having, those don't exist here in my home. Uh, but to acknowledge how, how powerful those are and that I had this link within my brain that feel the, feel the physical discomfort from the stimulation, feel that beehive in my, in my chest, uh, take the drug off the, off the countertop, get a little reward, go to the bathroom, get a little reward. Uh, it, it's, 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 a very, very dangerous pattern. And I think to me, it really, really acknowledging that and acknowledging my own personal limitations and, and, and setting the boundary to say, I, I can't go back there safely. And it's not to say that I, that I, that I think I will cert would certainly go back and use narcotics if I, if I did go back there, but I just think, why would I do that to myself? <laughs> why would I roll the dice like that? Why would I put myself in a, in a, at, at such a disadvantage, my, my sobriety means so much more to me than, than rolling the dice with that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big point of contention I have with a machine too, because 
in the machine, uh, the usual protocol is that they want you to get back to work right away. It's a big push. Even before you're, you're sent to treatment, it's don't worry. You know, the last thing you hear before you get sent off is don't worry, we're going to get you back to work. Yeah. And I remember thinking, <laughs> back to work? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Like, I'm, yeah. this is bullshit. I'm out of here. I'm never going back there. And uh, <laughs> at least not with, uh, you know, a long break and some serious consideration and changes, right? Um, and then you look at a lot of the monitoring contracts and they there's a push towards a graduated return to work. Yeah. But I look at these things and I laugh. It's like, yeah, so uh, Nurse X will uh, be required to have a graduated return to work, which means you know, uh, they work X amount of hours and then it's basically two weeks of kind of like a ramp up to 12 hour right. shifts. Right. And I'm like, that, you don't understand. Like that is, I, you know, if, if you looked at it from a probability, a strictly a probability uh, viewpoint, um, you are putting that individual in a battle that they are not prepared to fight. Yeah. And you're basically throwing them right in there as if you... The problem I have with it is if is they must there must be many professionals that are part of this uh, machine that understand how dangerous that is, and yet there doesn't seem to be any. You know, there's a tiny bit of a push now to to uh, get uh, more time on the graduated uh, back to work, but I don't see like to me. I think one of the first things that needs to be addressed is. After you get back from treatment and you have some time, like say you 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 manage to get to that 90-day point, the clouds start to clear, you're looking back and you're thinking, holy crap, you know, I just went through all this. I think that's a good time to start discussing whether or not you should continue in the profession, not when can I get back to work. And I see that on both sides. I see people who who get caught up and they get sent away. And the first thing they want to know is just a big inconvenience. Whole thing's a big inconvenience, and they, uh, you know, they're mad. And I, I totally understand that. I was very mad too, but they want to get back to work as soon as possible, as if, you know, they're concerned about their bills and stuff. As if that matters in comparison. Yeah. Like, we're not talking about, you know, defaulting on your mortgage. Okay, we're talking about your goddamn life. Yeah, and like it, it. It's difficult for me to understand uh, the priority, the thought process and somebody's priorities when when not only in the machine and that that seems to be the push, but when I see that from a person where they just they want to get right back in there. And I there's a part of me that thinks, well, man, has this person had time to even go to war with themselves? You know, do they even know who's really steering them? Do they do they have an understanding of what goes on in the mind and how powerful that that driving force is? Or are yeah. they just still completely in the dark and they're marching back in there because they a part of them knows what's gonna happen? You know? It's a very, very risky situation uh to be in. You know, I would equate it to a hockey player returning to the ice after a major head injury. Yeah. And, and we, we've all watched those hockey games and thought, is this player back already? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and it, yeah, that's exactly what it is because, uh, you know, they're literally putting their, their entire future on the line, their yeah. mental health 
their their baseline health, everything for a continued paycheck. Yeah. And they don't have to remember, you know, <laughs> you don't have to. But, and that uh, feeling, that feeling of that reminder of how much control we have and the things that we have control over for me has been really valuable and really supportive of my ongoing sobriety and my ongoing personal empowerment is to say, wait a second, I can be in, in the driver's seat here. It's a, again, it's a circumstance where we feel very much like we're not in the driver's seat, but at the end of the day, we can, we can choose. We have a lot of choice and it's a helpful, helpful thing to remember. It is uh, in recovery for sure. And that, I mean, it's a good question to, uh, to kind of go over how much control do we actually have during active addiction? Yeah. Um, according to, uh, you know, the, the old school paradigm of 12 steps, you have no control. That's what is it? Step two or something. You, you, you recognize that you have no control. You're completely powerless over the substance, which is of course ridiculous because if you were powerless, how did you get to the meeting to try to, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make yeah. any goddamn sense. Um, I sort of, you know, I, I think <laughs> there's some truth in what they're saying uh, as far as, you know, I look at it as a, a manageability problem in that respect. It's like, at what point did you lose control of this situation? What were the, you know, what factors caused you to lose control? And then even at your worst, somehow you managed to put yourself in a spot where you could get out of it. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. I, how much control did you feel you had? At the time? Yeah. I think initially I felt like I had a lot of control. Okay. And I think it, 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 it made me feel as though I had even more control than before because now I had a, a, a performance enhancer, so to speak. And, and in, a, in working in an environment where there's oftentimes a feeling of, of a loss of control, it was like a, Hey, I, you know, not only do I have a performance enhancer, but, but uh, you can't get me. I've, I'm running my own show here. Very admittedly, very dysfunctional thinking, but it was, it was the, it was a false sense of, of control in a, in an environment that made me feel out of control. Now, going back to your question though, I, I did feel that I had control over that, that behavior, that behavior of, of substance use. Um, however, <laughs> on a weekly basis on the day before I would, or the morning before I would return to work and I would tell myself, I'm not going to use today and then get to work and follow that sort of follow that pathway of, of, of substance use. Um, in those moments, I was, I was aware that I was losing control of that. And as it went on, I was really aware and really aware that not only that, but that I was requiring more, more drug to get the same high and that the compulsion was becoming more and more irrational where I knew that I had taken, taken the drug and was, was high, so to speak, but I, that compulsion would, would still be there 
And so the last couple of weeks of work, the last set of shifts in particular, I look back and I, I just, I, I shake my head and cringe at what I was doing because it was completely out of control where I would take a, take a, a dose of the drug and then like 20 minutes or 30 minutes later say, no, I need, I need more of that now. I need to go do that again. And that, that ability to override and say, stop, you do not need to do that. That is an irrational belief that you need to do that right now, that you can't cope with this situation. Um, and again, we, you know, we've talked about, and we're going to, we're about to get to the conversation about what, what works. Um, but learning, learning the ability, the ability to say, stop, let's, let's check out that thought that we're having. Let's check out what, what's happening with us mentally in this moment. That became a really, really valuable thing. Um, and the more that I did that and practiced that, the more in control I felt, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, I kind of, it's sort of like you're flying a, uh, let's see, you're, you're flying a, a jet and your jet is acting up. You're starting to, you're starting to notice there's some problems going on and you think, well, I, you know, I better check in and probably start heading towards the nearest airport. Um, and then things continue to, to degrade with your, your aircraft starts to sputter, you lose an engine and you realize that you're not going to make it to the airport. Uh, the situation's pretty serious. And at some point you're careening towards the ground and you've got to pull the parachute. And that's kind of, that, that's kind of the, the level of catastrophe that I think I was heading for. And then I, you know, for whatever reason was able to, the first time I was able to on my own, just be like, Hey, I'm, I, I'm out. I quit. I'm, I'm going home. I'm going to try and kick this myself. I pull the parachute. I don't care what happens. The plane can fuck off. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to do what it takes to get, uh, to get better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, it's a progressive, it's like the deck is being stacked against you progressively. And the longer you, you kind of stay with it, the harder it gets to correct your course. And I mean, you could look at people who, I mean, imagine somebody with no resources, no social resources, no financial resources, no education. Um, you know, they're homeless and they've been using crack cocaine, methamphetamines, you know, all hard drugs for 20 plus years via intravenous use, you know, you look at that situation and ask how much control does that person have? Well, they're in big trouble. You know, there, there's a, there's a level of, uh, it becomes a mountain. And at some point, I think that mountain does get to be, it, it just gets to be too much. You're just, you're simply overwhelmed. So it's kind of, it's a, like a progressive loss of, uh, of ability to make a good decision. You know, everything becomes, Short-term at the cost of everything long-term, including your life eventually. Yeah. And the, and the chemical dependency has a part of that, like the, 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 the brain and body's requirement for more, more alcohol, more hydromorphone or more opiates. Um, what, what once satisfied us then doesn't satisfy us as we go on. Um, that has a very, 
real impact on on the control that we have or or that we don't have. Yeah, absolutely. What other questions did we have? Well, we could talk about, I mean, both of us are sitting here today somehow. Um, you know, we, we managed to correct the course through, you know, uh, other people uh, helping us uh, and, you know, family, friends, uh, you know, whatever kind of support networks we had in place, we were fortunate enough to get out of that. And now here we are uh, discussing it. So I guess what I wanted to hear, the first thing I wanted to hear was, is it possible to get back? You know, is it, is it really possible to, um, to kick the, the kind of habit where you're, you're completely dependent on an opioid? Um, is it possible? Do you do you feel like you're you're in a, uh, a state now where you could you could say yeah I believe it's possible and I think I'm okay? How do you feel about that? You know, I said to I said to my family this week that that the feeling of or the the thought of of taking an opiate right now with where my life is it actually it, it feels distasteful. It feels like a, a yucky thought to. Um, it doesn't, when I have that train of thought about like, what would it be like right now with all the, the connections that I have with all the positive things happening in my life and changing, what would, what was it, what would it be like to be high on an opiate right now? I think it would be a, a gross feeling. There's been a switch in me that um, where all of these things in my life that have kind of come together um, within my personal life, within my mind, body, and and spirit that it doesn't feel appealing now. Um, and I think that is a result of, of the things that I've done to get my life to a certain point right now. Um, is that to say that I feel like it will, that would never come ever, ever come back to me or that I will, would never have an urge. I know that, that I will have to be vigilant about that. And that, that for me to be complacent could be a dangerous thing. But it's it's very interesting that to look at the look at an opiate in the context of my current life today would be does not appeal to me at all. Yeah, I, I think you've got another thing going for you, Corey, and that's that uh, some people when they you know they get into a situation like some healthcare workers find themselves in, they're sent to treatment and they come back and they're in a monitoring program. I can see some people are, they, they didn't really want that to happen. And I believe that there's a significant portion of them who's, who actually wanted to continue with what was going on. Yeah. And that seems to be the biggest factor uh, in, is, you know, as far as success is concerned, the first thing I look at and ask people under any circumstances is, do you, do you want to change? Do you want to change? Is it you that's making this decision? Yeah. Is it your, or is it your family who thinks it's a good idea? Or you know, maybe it's your your wife or your husband who is pressuring you to to get help. Because if that's the case, those I, I don't I rarely see those people succeed. But the ones who you know, in your circumstances, you remember I remember you talking about uh, the feeling when you got into your truck, knowing that finally 
things were going to change and that the the relief from knowing that you weren't going to have to live that lie and be under the burden of of continuing with that lifestyle to me that says here's a guy who has had enough you know what i mean yeah, yeah. and i th- i think that that has played a large role in your success and i i believe that while you're right to be vigilant and continue to keep your eye on things. I think that that combined with the work that you're doing, the very hard work that you're doing um, is, is setting you on a course that, you know, I, I don't think there's any reason to, to believe that you're, you're going to have any more trouble. You know um, the only concern I think is, is where you're putting yourself into a situation where you're asking too much yourself. Like we discussed, if, yeah. if you were to walk back into an acute uh, care ward right now uh, and, and walk into a 12 hour shift, that is probably asking too much, you know? So absolutely, you know, but that's part of the learning, right? You, you know what your limits are. So, yeah. Uh, the, thank you for, for, for that. That's a very uh, humbling response to what I said. I, I think that, I wanted to share this. We were asking ourselves a question about what, what worked for us. What were specifics about our, our process that worked? And I mentioned in, in, in episode one about going, you know, week one of being at home and, and experiencing detox and waiting for the machine to be ready for me and waiting for uh, doctor's appointments. I went back to my counselor, to my original therapist that I had had a couple of years ago and she really helped me to see that there was a, um, a spiritual component and that going back to the, you know, the, some of the themes of my life, that feeling of, of experiencing grief as a, as a infant and, and not being old enough to be able to understand it or understand what was happening in the world around me. And then becoming a nurse, I'm skipping over lots of life events here, but <laughs> becoming a nurse and being in um, circumstances where a part of me, a part of my, my spiritual self was fractured off. Every time I encountered something that was, was traumatic or where I was seeing, seeing death and seeing human suffering and seeing tragedy and that that chipped away at, at parts of my parts of my, my spiritual being, this has nothing to do with, with religion, but just acknowledging myself as a, as a mind, body, and, and spirit. And so one of the things that we did was art exercises that allowed me to kind of call that piece of myself back and to say like, and it, you know, this was exhausting to, to, to go over like, so I, in the first month and a half of, of being at home, I produced something like 25 pieces of art, all from situations that had taken a, a piece of, a piece of me in one way or another, or where, and I, and how do, how did I determine that it took a piece of me? It was unresolved. I had, I had uh, continued sustained thoughts about those incidences. Um, I had painful memories of those incidences. It, it stirred up anxiety in me. So we said, okay, so here are the things that, you know, from, from work or from life that are nagging at you and that are unresolved and that have kind of taken a piece of you. And so to create a piece of art, to understand the situation better, to understand my role in the situation and the effect it had on me was kind of like calling myself back 
and kind of like putting those pieces back together. Now I acknowledge that that's pretty, pretty out there, pretty esoteric, but, but the difference in how I felt after doing each one of those pieces of art was like a little bit better, a little bit clearer. I understood myself more. And literally the, the things that the incidences that I was remembering before and that were weighing on me before suddenly weren't weighing on me as much. And I looked at, and the, that perspective I had kind of shifted with each time I did that. And, um, and that, I mean, that's, you're not going to do that in a, in a, in a inpatient or outpatient rehab program. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that everyone needs to do that, but I think I fully acknowledged what was the impact of my life circumstances and really, really own those things. I think that was a huge part that, that worked for me in that, in that moment. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting piece there. Um, it reminds me of something you said a while ago uh, in, in one of the, in one of the meetings, it was the spirituality is a word that gets tossed around all the time. And it's like, you know, what the hell, what do you mean spiritual? What does yeah. this, what does this mean? And I think it, it, obviously it means different things to different people, but you had a, a kind of a definition for it um, where you were discussing it was those times when you, when you got kind of lost in the moment and you weren't thinking about like uh, the angst of the beehive in your, in your belly or uh, do you remember what I was talking about there? Yeah. I, what I was, what I was talking about was that, that the times of, of joy and I, 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 Connect made the connection that that joy is a a spiritual state, okay, a spiritual experience, and the times where I felt most joyful were ones where I was thinking outside of myself and right. disconnected from my conscious brain and able to to feel something with my with my body and feel it deeply and feel gratitude and feel alive and I felt most alive in those moments where I was uh, joyful and not sitting in that, <laughs> that, right. uh, the, the recesses of my conscious mind. Yeah. And that's what I think we were discussing the ability to get out of yourself and how that was in itself a spiritual form. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. I, I thought that was pretty cool. I I've heard a few different, uh, kind of definitions from people and I, I like that one quite a bit. Because there is, I mean, it's, people crave that all the time. It's why they go to comedy shows. It's why they watch movies. It's, it's why they play games. It gets you out of your head. It does. Exactly. Exactly. So mm -hmm. for you was taking the path of, of um, being a, um, a supportive figure within a community. Was that a part of your, the journey that really worked for you or had the things that worked worked before you got to the place where you said, I'm going to be a leader here. Um, I, I started obsidian because I basically strictly to, to help the other people who are stuck in there, because I thought that the situation was severe enough that somebody had to do something. Um, but what I've gotten out of it is a lot more than I thought. And I didn't really consider when I started the thing that, I mean, basically what I'm doing is I'm, I'm putting myself into those groups twice a week with all of these different healthcare professionals. They're all these smart people with different perspectives and backgrounds. And I'm learning, 
like over the last, well, it's almost four years now, I'm just having my head crammed full of these awesome little tidbits of wisdom and information. And so, I mean, really like the amount that I've gotten out of that towards my own kind of stability, <laughs> my mental health and my stability as a human being is much, much more than I thought. So I didn't start out with that intention, but it absolutely has, has helped me. Yeah. What, what helped you while you were in the middle of it? Can you pull something out that was beneficial to you as you were? Sure. Sure. I mean, it, uh, for me, it was, it was pretty basic stuff that, uh, I mean, I was in a, you know, I was, if I couldn't find a way out of my head, like we were just talking about, if I, if I couldn't get out of my head, then I thought I was, a, I was in danger of, uh, uh, suicide. You know, I, like I, I couldn't, I just didn't want to continue under those circumstances too much. It just was too much shit to deal with, you know? And, uh, I knew I couldn't do that. So I had to, uh, find ways to really effective ways to get out of my head and, there were two at first that kind of kept me sane and that was uh, reading. And when reading failed, meditating. And if both of those failed, then exercise to exhaustion. Between those three, I was able to kind of settle my mind down enough or at least take breaks. Because what I found was if I just kind of, I mean, there's a, there's something to be said for processing these types of issues that, I mean, everyone's got issues that should be processed and you kind of life demands that you work through some of this stuff. If you don't, then life won't be denied. It'll, it'll show up somewhere in your life. uh, Other than, you know, if you ignore these things, they'll just pop up somewhere else. You you have to kind of face them head on or, or push through them somehow. So I knew that I had to process some of this stuff that I hadn't processed in a long time. And when I couldn't process any more, then I would do one of those three things to kind of take a break. And in this way, over the, the months that accumulated, I was able to stay in the processing pocket longer. And then I didn't have to rely on those other kind of avenues to get out of my head as much. It wasn't, it didn't become a dire situation. So I was able to exercise more like a normal human being where, you know, I can just pick a time per day. Exercise is still very important to my mental health and my recovery back to, you know, I I was very weak and, you know, my body was just shredded after, you know, my nervous system was, you know, you know how it is coming out of it. It's, uh, you're not in a good state. So anything that uh, puts a little bit of pressure on your nervous system, but not too much is kind of the key. So I looked at it as, uh, as a, a long-term kind of journey back and just chipped away at it in a, a very baby step orientated process, which is super important too. And I made the mistake many, many times of trying to rush or trying to take two biggest steps. And I realized that it's, um, you can't, the time portion of it, you just have to leave alone. You just have to accept that, that you can't rush whatever's whatever needs to be done. So you just kind of, you do what you can. Uh, you try to, you try to be kind to yourself. And this was a big one for me because I was early on, I was beating myself up so bad that it was contributing to the a level of negativity that you know, was concerning. I mean, I I got to a point where I was like, Hey, if you either fix this and start treating yourself, you got to be nicer to yourself or you're going to have big problems. 
And uh, so once I started kind of being more patient with myself, changing the rhetoric in my mind a little bit and starting to piece together what happened and why it happened and why I made the decisions that I made, it took a long, long time. But just working towards that, I was eventually able to kind of come up to a certain point where I started to feel um, some more natural kind of uh, emotions. Like I, for a long time, I was pretty deadened to everything. So, and I couldn't feel pleasure of any kind. Uh, and life was, you know, it's just, everything is shit. You know, it just feels like it, there's nothing that makes you smile. Everything's kind of bleak. Right. But over time that came back and, um, and yeah, um, there were, there were a few kind of primary, I don't know, they're kind of like the pillars that got me through and um, they were uh, one of them was faith. I needed to, in the beginning, I had to at least consider that even though that it looked really shitty at first and it felt like I couldn't do it, I had to believe that I could. Um, yeah. I needed courage to, to fight through when I, when I thought it was impossible and I needed courage to do things that would, stretch me to my limit so that I could push a little further the next day. Um, resilience was something that I was working on the whole time, both physically, mentally, you know, trying to, to build up that resilience and replace the resilience that I never had, you know, the spending all that time, you know, avoiding issues uh, that I should have been dealing with. I was actually weakening myself and I realized that I need to go back and kind of build that back up. Um, and then the other big one that was probably the, the hardest one for me was honesty. And it wasn't what I found that it, you can be honest with other people. That's a challenge. Um, but being honest with yourself is a huge challenge and it is very, very difficult. It's a skill that takes a lot of practice because you, I can bullshit myself in ways that are astonishing. You know, it's, uh, I, I can't believe the things I can talk myself into if I just am not paying attention. It's, it's ridiculous. So, um, so honesty is honesty with myself helped tremendously. Once I understood that, that, that was something that needed to be addressed and I didn't even care. I said, be honest with yourself first. If you can get that far, that's fine. Work on honest with other people as you go along. You know, that's a skill that can be cultivated as well. So those, and then eventually the last, uh, the last of the five big ones for me was uh, vulnerability. And I realized that you need to, you need to be getting out of your comfort zone on a regular basis, um, especially early on, because you don't want to, you want to sit in a little cocoon and you want to just, you know, you want to, you want to self-isolate, you want to, you want to just try to make the pain go away in any way, shape or form. And that's not the best way to do it yet. You actually have to, you have to make the effort to get out there and push the envelope a little bit every day. And that's hard to do, but if you can, the rewards are tremendous. Um, and I, all those things can, can be related to, you know, just everyday life, of course, but. Oh yeah. Early in recovery, those were the things that, uh, that got me through those five. Those are huge. I love those five. I think, I think recovery or not how uh, those are life-changing principles to, to, to lean on. 
Um, and they all kind of come back to that analogy that I had used a few minutes ago about removing the mask. That's mm-hmm. essentially what you're doing for yourself first and showing yourself yourself being kind to yourself and then removing the outward mask as well. So that question or that topic kind of leads me to this next question, Nathan. And I wonder if you think this is a good, good place to, to wrap up on about the question of, of what does it mean to be recovered and is recovery truly possible? Uh, Yes. And yes, I think that's a, that is a good, uh, spot to end it on. I think we're almost at two hours here. So yeah, it's, it's probably good, man. We can, uh, we can chat about this <laughs> stuff. Eh? <laughs> Pretty amazing. Um, what does it mean to be recovered? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of different things you could say about that, I guess. Um, for me, it's, it's about regaining my autonomy as a person and not being a slave to a substance. Um, not being, I mean, oxycodone demands a a certain amount of maintenance. Um, It takes a lot away from you. And uh, in the end, it doesn't give a lot back. So having that removed allows me to have a future. And that's something for a long time I didn't think I was going to have, or I didn't consider it. And um, you'll hear that often from people who who have gotten back to a place where they can kind of get their bearings again. And they look around like, huh, I can start making decisions now that actually affect me long-term, which is quite a luxury <laughs> after years of not being able to do so. Right. Yeah. So um, that part is big. And I've learned a lot about my own limits. I think, you know, when I was uh, in my 20s and, you know, definitely my 20s, but early 30s, I kind of, I just thought that I could just kind of do whatever and always be okay, you know, and, and um, I proved that that is incorrect. <laughs> A very, very lengthy, expensive and difficult experiment has led me to the conclusion that I am not, in fact, invincible. And uh, there are certain substances that I can't manage. And oxycodone is one of them. And it's, it's, it's so dangerous for me that it's, it's something that I'll have, I'll have to avoid it for the rest of my life. And that's fine. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. And um, so for me, you know, it's, it's regaining whatever control we have over our, or our own lives as a human. Um, I've regained that extent of control, I feel. So for me, that's what it means to be recovered. Yeah. Yourself? Great answer. I think, so first of all, I've, I've been fascinated with the word recovery, that it implies that there's a full healing that occurs. Recovery from an injury means that your broken leg is healed and you can go back to, to riding a bike and running on it and doing all of your normal things. In the context of, of substance abuse, I'm not sure that it, that it means quite the same thing. I'm admittedly guilty of of quoting therapists. And I, I am fortunate enough that I've had really great and still have a really great therapist, but this was presented to me, this question of, would you say that, that you fully heal from grief? I think anybody who has experienced grief and loss in their life would say, no, 
you don't fully heal from that. You don't fully recover from, from grief. It, it shapes you. It changes you. It becomes a part of you. Um, it, it, is, it has a presence in your life. And I think for me, recovery will be the same thing that, that I agree with you with what you said, that my, my risks are, are down. I'm well-connected. I'm well-tethered. Um, I've learned a ton about myself. But what happened to me, you know, w- over a year ago now, um, will, will stay with me to some degree, and it will be a part of my life to some degree. The beautiful thing is that it's a positive part of becoming a positive part of my life. It's been something that has made me more connected. It has taught me a ton about myself, taught me a ton about humanity and other people. I've gained friends. I've gained connections. So if that's what it means to be for it to be a part of my life, then, then damn, I wish I had a found it a long, a long time ago. But I think to at least, for me to at least acknowledge that it is a presence is probably a healthy thing. And to acknowledge that I have genetic risk factors, I have environmental triggers, I have feelings within myself uh, that need to be acknowledged and need to be nurtured and looked after and not neglected. Then, then so be it. Like those are things that I'm able to live with and able to move forward with knowing. And it was not knowing and not acknowledging all those things that were a huge factor to send me down the path of, of addiction. So that's what it means for me. Um, I also know that it means different things for different people and that's okay too. But I think at the very least to, to know that, 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 that there's work to be put in and that um, it is an organism that needs to be fed and not neglected and that neglecting it is problematic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I like that answer as well. Um, it also gives me a chance to plug obsidian just because uh, yeah. that that's why I named my company obsidian because Obsidian is material that goes through a very high intensity, uh, high pressure, high heat experience and comes out the other end changed, but beautiful. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I've, and, I've wanted uh, to ask you that before. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the saying, the hotter, the hotter, the fire, the harder, the steel. Um, that's kind of the way I look at it. And, uh, you know, we're still here. We've learned a whole bunch of things and we've learned some limits about uh, ourselves that will probably serve us for the rest of our lives. So, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, let's uh, wrap it up there and uh, we'll call that, uh, we'll call that good for episode three. And uh, that sound good. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you All to right. uh, the people who are listening. We're, we're uh, humbled and honored to have you, joining us in our conversation and we're going to uh, gratefully keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all the positive uh, feedback we've gotten. We very much appreciate that folks. Yeah. So uh, thanks a lot and we will see you next time. Yeah. See you soon. Mm-hmm.